This week, we're taking issue with transparency in the Bay State and zoning in Boston. Whether you're Joe Public or an investigative reporter, it can be hard to get your hands on public records in Massachusetts. NBC10 investigator Ryan Kath will explain why that is. And we'll talk to Sarah Bronin about efforts to update Boston's archaic zoning ordinance. This is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment. And this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Hello and welcome to another edition of Taking Issue. I'm Corey Smith. As you can see, I'm rolling solo today, such as life around the holidays in a newsroom. Both Sue and Matt are off. This week, we're going to be speaking with NBC10 investigative reporter Ryan Kath about how difficult it is to get your hands on public records in Massachusetts. It's a conversation we had on a recent episode of that issue, and Ryan breaks down some of the challenges that he's had getting public records access and the efforts to improve the system. Let's take a listen. It's a season of giving, but that's not why the town of Natick, hello Natick, paid public radio station WBUR more than $22,000. Natick paid that money to settle a lawsuit that was filed because for months the town refused to provide records on a town police officer who was accused of sexually assaulting a dispatcher. The town also had to pay $15,000 to its own lawyers to handle the case. Natick, though, hardly alone. The city of Boston paid $7,000 to WBUR to settle a suit that the police department failed to respond to public records requests and $75,000 to the nonprofit Lawyers for Civil Rights to deal with a backlog of public records requests. And the city of Worcester paid the Worcester Telegram and Gazette $180,000 after it ruled it withheld records of police misconduct investigations illegally. So I think we can all agree that this is not the best use of taxpayer money. So why are cities and towns unresponsive to public records requests? And could these recent rulings and payouts change their behavior? Joining us to talk about the culture of secrecy in the Bay State's government at all levels is NBC10 Boston investigative reporter Ryan Kath. Ryan's investigative series, Small Town Secrets, looks into this exact issue, the withholding of information from the public by public officials. We appreciate you being here. I've been patiently waiting for my invite. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ryan, you've worked in other parts of the country, I hear, uh, and you have had trouble getting your hands on public records here. Has it been the same in the other places that you've worked? Not at all. Uh, I previously worked in Kansas City, and records were readily available online where you could just jump on a computer and quickly find out information during breaking news. When I came to Massachusetts, I, of course, expected that to be the same. You know, Massachusetts is this beacon of transparency, right? Um, Not the case at all. It's a very frustrating environment to work as an investigative reporter. I know we're going to be diving into some of the reasons why. So I'll be at a holiday party this year, New Year's Eve, and someone will say, hey, this is happening in this town. I bring a lead into you, into your department, and say, hey, I heard this, um, and you need to get maybe the records that are happening. Walk us through the steps that you go through and the obstacles that you hit when trying to get these public records. We have to emphasize they're public records. They belong to us. We spend a ridiculous amount of time chasing down public records in our job. And if we get a tip, like the person you're talking about, the first thing we usually have to do is find the documentation to prove it, right? So we submit what's called a public records request to that town. It usually goes to someone like the town clerk. You're supposed to be able to get a response within 10 business days where they either say, here's what you asked for, or 
For these reasons, we're going to need a little more time or it's going to cost some money for us to pay a staff member to track down all of this information. Sounds like a pretty simple process, right? Not always the case. In fact, it's, majority of the times it's not the case. Uh, you get denials of your records request for a number of different reasons. They'll say, oh, it's a personnel matter, so we can't give it to you. Or, oh, it's an ongoing investigation, so we can't give it to you. You might run into that. You also might run into just crickets chirping where they haven't responded, period. And that brings you to the next step of the equation where you need to you know, take it to the next level. What, what is that next level? Because the, they say they don't respond within that 10-day that period. And then you say, hey, you had 10 days. It's like, oh, yes, yes, we're working on it. But then it just drags out and you still never get your records. What other recourse do investigative reporters like yourself have to finally get your hands on them? So we have the lovely appeal process. <laughs> and I'm sure people hear the word appeal and they're like, well, that, that's not quick. Uh, you know, I hear about legal cases on appeal for months, if not years. Uh, the Secretary of State has a supervisor of public records. So they're the agency that's supposed to hold the hammer that can force some of these municipalities or agencies to provide public records. So what I have to do is say, I'm appealing to you because I put this request in and I haven't gotten the records yet or I've been denied and I feel that I was incorrectly denied. So that goes off to the Secretary of State and then you wait for the Secretary of State to issue a new letter that says, oh yeah, we, we agree with you. We think the town should provide you a new response. Well, that kind of starts the clock over and th they'll say, well, you, the town, should provide a new response to them. So the town may come up with a different reason to deny you, or they may finally provide you with the records. But the problem is, what's happened? A lot of time has gone by. And you, the viewer, might have questions about a particular story and say, well, why aren't they asking this question? Or why don't we know this information yet? This is the behind the scenes on why that might be taking place. And the problem is, by the time you get the public records, that issue might not be timely or newsworthy or relevant any longer, and it may never see the light of day. In your experience, we know, we know you investigate things at the, at the state level, at the local level, a lot of small towns and communities in Massachusetts. Where do you have the most trouble? Is it the, those large, robust agencies uh, at, at the state level um, that just have a, a bunch of people working for them, or is it the small towns uh, that, that just may have a town clerk that has to deal with everything? Well, we've, we've made a whole series called Small Town Secrets, so you know there are some issues there, but right. yeah, of course we get that from the big agencies as well. I, I looked back prior to this segment just to see where I've had to file appeals and public records, and it is across the board. Uh, there are the big dogs, Boston Police, MassDOT, the MBTA, places like that that are these enormous uh, you know, organizations and agencies that you, know, you can feel like, oh, they must have this huge backlog of public records because everyone wants information from them. But I also had appeals to smaller towns, you know, the Boxborough, Mansfield, some of the places like that where you also run into obstacles. Ryan, I, every time I have a new colleague come join us here in the newsroom or in my other worlds that comes from another state, they expect Massachusetts to be many things. They're often disappointed, and one of them is when they have to make their first records request. How do we compare to other states? I mean, we're the best. Massachusetts is number one, right? Not at all, Sue. Uh, you know, for people that rank these types of things, yeah. Massachusetts uh, frequently gets an F or comes down to the very bottom of the list when you look at all, all 50 states. Uh, and I know, you know, we, it, when you work around the country, you've had to file certain requests other places, you see how easy it can be. Um, one really stark example in Massachusetts is just going, being able to go onto a computer and look up criminal public records. 
And just to give people a sense of why that might come into play, if there is a large breaking news story, I know this month we had uh, the driver who hit and killed the Waltham police officer and the national grid worker. So people are going to have a lot of questions about who that suspect is. We do as well, and we're trying to get people that information. Um, you can't just jump on a computer and look up that driver's record here in Massachusetts. In other states, and it turned out this suspect did have quite an extensive record in other states, we were able to get that information fairly quickly and be able to provide it to people. But here, in Massachusetts, where this happened, instead of being able to just jump on a computer, I had to actually drive to a nearby courthouse and plug in that individual's name into every single district court in Massachusetts to see if something popped up. That's 62 di different district courts where I had to somewhere, go somewhere physically to find out the answer as opposed to doing it on the computer, which has been my experience in other places that I've worked. And I know investigative reporters that I know it, who work in Florida. Oh, yeah. The they say that's State. the best. It's like, investigative, laws. Yeah, it's like an investigative reporter's dream because almost everything is at your fingertips. So I just want to put a point on this. If you're watching at home and you hear us reporting on someone who had a crash and we talk about their main driving record, their New Hampshire driving record, and then two weeks later we have to we report about their Massachusetts driving record, it's because that's how long it took the state to release that information to us. And it's funny you bring up driving records because that was something that up until recently was publicly available because of a new law that just took effect uh, this year. Public driving records are no longer considered public. So we can't even tell people, you know, if there's a serious incident like this, oh, well, it turns out this person has three previous OUIs and 10 speeding tickets. That's no longer considered public. Uh, so let's talk about sort of at the, at the state level. We know whenever you file a public records request, if they deny you, you know, they say, oh, these are exempt, you know, for a, a whole host of reasons. But a lot of people don't know that the legislature, executive branch, governor's administration, Supreme Judicial Court, all of them are exempt from state records laws. Why is that? And is anybody working to change that? There's been a lot of different pushes over the years to do that. And, and you know, as the saying goes, the problem starts at the top. And so I'm sure people say, well, if the legislature and the governor's office aren't you know, they don't have to provide public records, then, well, why should we be in this rush to provide public records? Why should we be up open to that type of scrutiny? So I think it's, you know, the, the change has to be made at the top. And I know you have recently asked Governor Healy if that's a, a, a promise she intends to make. And I know you got, uh, well, how would you describe the answer you got? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very transparent as the governor. Um, certainly there are sensitive issues that we can't divulge to the public mm -hmm. in certain cases, but we're, we're doing the best we can is, is the sense that I yeah, got. Yeah, and she follows the law, which is not favorable to the public records, right? So she is, I guess, transparent based on this non-transparent loss that we have. So it's, it's an attitude, right? right. And the attitude trickles down. Um, I said earlier, people have, by law, 10 business days to respond. There are times we make the most simple records requests. I have one that I'm waiting for as we speak. It is for a single letter that was sent to a person, and I know it would take someone five minutes to attach it to an email and send it to me. And the response you get when you call the check-in is, oh, well, we have 10 business days to give it to you, so expect it by such and such a date. And you're thinking, but I know you can just send it to me right now. It's just an overall attitude that somehow needs to change. So we're talking a lot about records, but there's also maybe a transparency problem even when it comes to court proceedings. Tell us about this clerk magistrate hearing issues and what, what happens in these proceedings that really don't ever make the light of day. 
I don't think a lot of people know about this process. Um, it's not something you see for more serious crimes that tend to make the news, uh, your murders and other felonies, things like, like that. If there's a less serious crime, there's a process in Massachusetts called clerk magistrate hearings. And that's when you're summoned to appear in court and each side kind of gives the evidence. It's usually police on one side and then the defendant on the other. And a clerk magistrate will determine if there's enough probable cause to move forward. That entire process takes place behind closed doors. And if the clerk decides that there isn't enough probable cause to move forward, the entire case vanishes. It's not considered public record. So you can't go back and say, oh, well, so-and-so almost faced a crime back here. What happened with that? We don't know. And so it's, it's almost like this secretive court process in Massachusetts. And is it just Joe Public who, who goes through these processes or are public officials sometimes the subject of these hearings? And that's why they get attention occasionally is because we find out some high profile, whether it's an athlete or public official, has a high-priced attorney who knows the system and is able to sneak in for one of these clerk magistrate hearings and they find a way to make the case go away by arguing who knows what, because we, we don't get to go behind closed doors and people never hear about it. Um, the good news is recently uh, we have had success arguing that certain clerk magistrate hearings should be open to the public because they either are a matter of high public interest or they involve a public official. So over the past year, we have had success opening up some of those magistrate hearings um, to the public, and they've resulted in criminal charges. One of the most notable ones was the former Brockton police chief who ended up facing a negligent driving charge after we uncovered a serious wreck that he'd been in that had completely flown under the radar. All right, so any chance that any of this will ever change? <laughs> we got to look into the crystal ball here. I, I don't it's know, Christmas Sue. Eve, we can ask. Yeah, we can uh, ask. I, I'm a cynic by, by nature, of course, what I do. Um, I, I just, I don't know what, the, what gets this over the hurdle. Um, what is it going to take to have that legislative backing and the stamp of approval from the governor? Um, I don't know the answer to what that. About I the sure fines? hope the answer is yes. The fines that, I mean, if taxpayers understand how much they're, they're paying and these fines, do you think that would make a difference? Well, that, li that list you showed at the beginning... Uh, who wasn't on there? Mm. Joe Citizen wasn't on there. Yeah. Those were media organizations. We're, we're seeing them again right now. So you have WBUR, you have a large newspaper in Worcester, and you have another organization that is pretty much dedicated to these types of fights. Uh, I don't know how many people are going to have the stomach to engage in, in litigation with the hopes that they'll be able to recoup those uh, legal fees in the end and then maybe be able to stick that agency or that municipality with a penalty. I just don't know. I mean, it's great to see that in some cases with organizations that have the bandwidth to try that. I'm sure if we really found a case that we were passionate about here, we would have the backing to pursue something similarly. But I liken it to this. If we're having this much problem getting public records, what's it like for the average citizen? And because we see all the time where people write to us and they're dealing with, they're banging their heads against some sort of bureaucratic brick wall. You know, they have a problem with the RMV where they, you know, have something on their record that shouldn't be on there. They've been dealing with it for months and they finally contact us and we make one call or send an email and it gets fixed. And that's a great feeling for us, but we often joke that, you know, we should have a segment that, that's just called, why are things so hard? <laughs> and they shouldn't be. Yeah. But it's great to be able to step in and provide that public service, but I always think about that. What is the public records request like for the average citizen 
if we have all these complaints as a large, you know, media yeah. organization. Well, keep banging your head against the brick wall. <laughs> we certainly do appreciate it. Of course, you can find Ryan's reports, Small Town Secrets on NBC10 Boston. Thanks for taking the time. We'll keep we fighting the good fight. Yeah. Of course, you can watch all of Ryan's Small Town Secret series online at NBC10Boston.com. Up next, a conversation Sue and I had with Sarah Bronin. She is uh, one of the minds behind Boston's efforts to update its archaic zoning ordinances. Recently, the mayor uh, announced a sort of streets and squares approach to updating the zoning ordinances in Boston with, of course, the uh, idea of addressing the affordable housing crisis front and center. Here's that conversation we had with Sarah Brown. We talk a lot about housing on this show, from rent control to the affordable housing crisis, and always lingering in the background of those conversations is zoning. So why does Boston need a more modernized zoning code, and how does the current code compare to cities of similar size around the country? Well, zoning uh, as a matter of law controls almost everything that gets built uh, in the United States. And the same goes for Boston, uh, which has a zoning code that covers virtually every square inch of the city. Um, when I reviewed the code, uh, it looked like a code that was uh, extremely complex. Uh, it had a lot of uh, outdated concepts embedded in it. And it made for a process that to ordinary property owners uh, would be cumbersome, at least, you know, given the text of the code. Um, so Boston needs to refresh and revamp its code like many cities have done across the country uh, for, uh, I think, maybe to meet uh, the goals of being a more sustainable and, and equitable and uh, it, it even uh, economically um, uh, sustainable uh, place. So compared to other cities, the Boston Zoning Code, just by its sheer length, is much, much longer than cities of similar population size. I dig into that a little bit in the report that I wrote for the city of Boston, um, but it is an outlier. In fact, um, as someone who's looked at thousands of zoning codes across the country, I think it's the longest one out there. So I'd be interested to see if anybody could challenge that, but I, I do think it's it's right up there at the very top. Well, we started writing it in 1680, so that might be part of it. Um, <laughs> you know, I heard a historian once say that zoning and bureaucracy have actually saved civilization, but you might argue in this one, uh, because you call Boston zoning co code, as you're saying, long, complex, outdated, inconsistent, in inequitable. Um, as you poured over it, what led, do you have any specific examples that led you to those conclusions? Well, so I used one example. And if you consider the, the length of a zoning code to be a proxy for its complexity, right then and there, you can see that that uh, makes Boston's code an outlier. Uh, similarly, the number of zoning districts in a code uh, could be, a, again, a proxy for complexity. And if you look at the city of Boston's, it's, it's about 450 juris, uh, zoning districts within city limits, uh, because Boston doesn't just have a residential district, a commercial district, an industrial district. It has dozens and dozens of sub-districts in, in each of those categories. And if you compare them to similarly situated communities, um, most of those communities have fewer than 50 uh, zoning districts. And so, again, if you think about how complex that makes uh, the, the ability um, of a property owner to understand what their uh, obligations are and the ability of the city to administer it uh, just in in terms of sheer numbers uh, you see that that complexity 
Um, in terms of just that, the, the concept of, of the inconsistencies within the code, and this is something that I think people who work with the code have recognized over time. Uh, I'll give you just another example, which is uh, definition within the code. So you have lots of, of different chapters in this code. So it's this lengthy text that's tied to the map of the city. And in each of these chapters, in many cases, there's a different definition for different terms. So whether that term is, uh, let's say, multifamily housing, whether that term is height, how do you determine uh, how to measure the height, um, it, whether that term is, is setbacks um, and how you measure those. In many different places in the code, you see different definitions and, and different understandings about how these principles that should probably be the same throughout the code are interpreted and thus applied. And so you do see, you know, again, at a very basic level, um, some room for improvement in the code. And I think that's what the city is planning to work on. So your report lays out some pathways to reform a complete overhaul or an incremental approach. Could you give us a brief rundown of the pros and cons for each of those approaches? So as somebody who worked in the city of Hartford, not too far away, uh, to rewrite its zoning code as the chair of that commission, um, we opted for an overhaul given the nature of uh, that code. And while it was not as long as Boston's, it was uh, similarly outdated, uh, including terms that we would not use today uh, for, for certain groups of people, including concepts uh, like public hearings for all housing, uh, all buildings downtown, as another example that we, we wouldn't uh, think is a matter of best practice today. So there we threw out the code and brought in a, a totally new one. And there is a challenge with that, um, that approach, and that is that you have to get everybody on board and have everybody buy into that that over overarching vision for what the zoning code could help the city to become and by rewriting the rules of the game it's a big change for property owners uh, whether they're residential or business owners uh, and um, it's important for everybody to to get on board so uh, if boston chooses that approach um, uh, then that's uh, you know again really a big effort um, and there has to be a forceful case made for that. I think you saw a little bit of that in Mayor Wu's comments about her uh, start to reform. I think for now, Boston's taken an incremental approach, which uh, has the benefit of tackling specific issues uh, one by one. Um, but of course, it doesn't have that same rip off the Band-Aid effect as a total overhaul might be. And so one concern might be, as any city that's done an incremental approach to the code, is that you get bogged down in these individual fights um, when you might as well have just done the whole hullabaloo at once. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, how these first efforts to re reform chunks of the code, that is a technical term, by the way, uh, play out. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether after a certain point they say, all right, it's time to, to, to do the rest. So Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants the city to move away from this zoning approach that is neighborhood specific, move to what she called the squares and streets model. What's the difference and how much of a role, if any, will you play in that implementation? So I will play, just to answer the second question first, I will play uh, no role in the implementation. Um, it's the city of Boston's uh, um, uh, road to hoe, I guess, uh, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, and and I think they are very capable of, of doing that. They have a, a good team in place at the planning department. In fact, uh, one of the the, the leaders in the zoning code front is uh, the former city planning 
director in Hartford. Um, so she has seen the implementation of a new code uh, and work through that in a similarly historic city, albeit much smaller. Um, so I, I, I'll say I, I will play no role in that. Um, but uh, your first question about the, the neighborhood planning and the squares and streets and how that plays out. So uh, as I say in the report, Boston has really had a very strong neighborhood planning ethic. Um, and the zoning code has been responsive to that. So all of those chapters that I just mentioned, all of those pieces of the code, many of them are neighborhood specific. So it'll have a, a, a neighborhood code for this neighborhood. And that's where you see all the new definitions and the, and the different approaches. Um, and so while that has been very responsive to neighborhood planning, it's, um, it, it's produced a lot of trees and not so much forest. Um, but if you look at these plans from one neighborhood to the other, they actually have a lot of really common themes. So things like uh, working on those avenues, creating nodes of activity like the squares, um, ensuring that residential property owners have uh, flexibility in their codes, ensuring that non-conforming properties, those properties that were that existed but then got written out of the zoning codes can come into conformance so that those properties can be improved again uh, much more easily. And then diversifying the housing stock. So you see those themes uh, consistent across lots of these neighborhood plans. Um, and I should also say historic preservation and and honoring the, the rich uh, architectural history of uh, this very historic city. You mentioned back in the 17th century, uh, you know, when, when the city was founded, um, that 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 people, some of those really old, uh, old buildings and old and uh, historic squares are still in place. And so honoring that is, is certainly a theme. So my suggestion is you take those those themes, you pull them out, and then you have a much more coherent way and, in fact, a more equitable way of administering a zoning code across lots of different neighborhoods. OK, so who do you expect to have pushback against the plan and do you expect there to be lawsuits trying to stop it? Well, you have seen in other parts of the country, including recently in Minneapolis, uh, different groups that have pushed back against ambitious citywide uh, planning and zoning efforts. Uh, so Minneapolis uh, just this uh, fall got a setback in the implementation of its 2040 plan. I hope for Boston, you know, that that the process goes as smoothly as possible, because as my report points out, uh, this kind of effort and this kind of streamlining is is long overdue. Um, there will always be somebody who, uh, you know, may not see the value of of this process. But I will say, based on my experience in Hartford and and overhauling the code there, the most important thing that can happen is that the political leadership really gets out there and shows people how their aspirations that were expressed in neighborhood plans and expressed in the recent citywide plan uh, can actually be finally realized through implementation in the zoning code. So I think between the neighborhood plans and the citywide plan, Bostonians have expressed a vision for how they want their uh, community to develop. And so I think it's up to the city's leaders and the city's planning department to make the case that changes to the zoning code will be the best way to help neighborhoods realize some of those ambitions. And then once people kind of come, you know, come to that kind of agreement, then I think a lot of those technical details um, and the actual implementation becomes a lot smoother. So I'm hopeful. I always want for um, for projects like this uh, to succeed because it's all really in service of better places for the people who inhabit them. 
All right, well, certainly a fascinating conversation, and we are all smarter for having it with you. Sarah Bronin, thank you so much for being with us here on Ad Issue. We really appreciate the time. Absolutely, and good luck, Boston. That is it for another edition of Taking Issue. We really do appreciate you joining us, and especially for these past few months. It's been such an honor and a privilege to be able to speak with Sue and Matt on a host of different topics, and we plan to do the same in 2024. For Taking Issue, I'm Corey Smith. Merry Christmas and happy holidays.